Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is July 2nd, 2014, and this is episode 1380 of the Survival Podcast, and today we will wrap up our episode on fishing, but we're not going to talk about fishing We're going to talk about taking that fish, cutting them up, and eating them like a real survivalist. No, really, we are going to have a great show today, all about cooking fish, some of my favorite ways to cook fish, and I'm going to give you a bunch of recipes. Do not ask me to write them down. I'm not going to write them down. I'm going to give them to you on the show, and I'm going to empower you to take them into your own creativity and do other things with them, because that is what we should do when we cook food. I talk about it all the time. The fact that many people cannot follow a recipe to make chicken soup that calls for parsley when they don't have parsley and make a decision to go forward anyway is indicative of the entire problem in the United States today. Jack, the whole problem in the United States is based on cooking? No. The whole problems in the United States today are based on people in, unable to think for themselves and make decisions. It just manifests itself in recipes and cooking. So... Think about that today when you're like, but I don't have. That's all right. Figure out what to do. Try it. It'll probably be good. Except don't leave the fish out. All right. Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Backwoods Home Magazine. You know, do you know how I know so much about self-sufficiency and self-reliance? I did grow up with it, but I also learned a lot from Backwoods Home. First year I subscribed to Backwoods Home was uh, 1994, year after I got out of the Army, 1994. I'm still a subscriber. Uh, the last time I checked, the year was 2014. That's 20 years. Uh, can't really give a better endorsement than that. It's really great, though, to be able to work with Backwoods Home Magazine today. You know, basically, to spend 20 years reading the work of authors like Dave Duffy, Dave Duffy, Dave Duffy and Masada Yub and Jackie Clay, and now to work with them is awesome. So, uh, they're just a natural fit. And when we had an opening and they wanted to sponsor the show, I brought them right on. Check them out today. Next up, knifekits.com. Hey, another problem in America is a lack of the ability to do something. Every time something needs to be done, The solution most people have is call a guy. Now, look, I get that. There's plenty of stuff I could do, but the guy can do it faster while I'm doing my job or seeing my animals or something like that. But I'm actually more likely to call a guy to do something that I already know I could do. If I'm not sure I could do it, I don't want to call a guy. I want to figure out how to do it so I have the skill set and the knowledge and learn from it. One of the great skills you can learn is basic hand tool use. Uh, form, fit, and finish, and you can learn all of that by also learning how to make knives at knifekits.com. Really great stuff, incredible exotic material, everything from everyday stuff to exotic stuff like buffalo horn, mammoth tusk, etc. Check them out today, knifekits.com. Remember, Backwoods Home and Knife Kits both do provide discounts for members of our support brigade, and that's a good segue into the MSB. If you join the MSB, the Members Support Brigade, you'll get discounts to about 40 companies right now. Some really good ones, too, like Knife Kits and Backwoods Home. And uh, one I just 
uh, added yesterday, EcoSense, which should appeal to the female portion of the audience a great deal. EcoSense is an awesome new company providing discounts to you guys. And it's the 4th of July week and weekend. So everybody else is going, come on down to the 4th of July sale. So I'm going to do it too, but I'm not going to be all stupid like that about it. I'm running a sale in honor of our nation's birthday for the people that are not yet members. $35 for your first year of member support brigade. Uh, you can sign up online. The discount code is 4July, and that's the number 4. So just, it's, it's, you know, five characters, 4JULY, 4JLUY. Put that in when you sign up. You get a discount of 15 bucks off your first year. If you are paying by mail, just write it on the form and, and, and then send 35 instead of $50. If you're paying by silver and using the form, pay with an ounce of silver. We'll just give you two extra months. We'll give you 14 versus 12 months per ounce of silver. If you want to pay bit, by Bitcoin, email me to make arrangements because it's a pain in the butt for me to set up a payment button for Bitcoin and it just doesn't work that way. So email me, I'll send you a wallet address, you pop me the Bitcoin over, and we'll uh, update your account. This is for new customers only, unless unless you pay by mail. If you pay by mail, you can renew an account, even though it's not already there. Just make sure you check the box that says existing customer and give us your username so that we can add it to your account. And that way, if you have auto-renew, we'll have to cancel auto-renew and PayPal for you. All right, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode. The year is 1380. And I got two for you, Taxes and Mad King Charles, which I really want to read. Um, I kind of want to read that one to you because it talks about taxes and property taxes and it's kind of a cool take. But then there's the other one called The Russians Become the Russians, and I really want to read that because Alex had to go and throw in the thing about Ukrainians at the end of it, and my family's Ukrainian. So how do I handle this? I, I'm going to do The Russians Become the Russians, but... If there was ever a day to to get out onto TSPWiki.com and read the other one and then comment on the on this blog episode, what are your thoughts on Alex's take on taxes and Mad King Charles? And and I'll leave it at that. But I'd love to hear some comments on that. Anyway, the Russians become the Russians. Mamak Khan of the White Horde has descended upon the forces of Dmitry Donsoyke the Grand Duke of Moscow, because Dmitry has defined the Khan, defied the Khan and refused to pay homage. After the original Mongol invasion, Kiev Rus has disintegrated into local princedoms paying tribute to the Mongols. But Moscow has been getting more and more powerful. Now in opposition to the Mongols, the Russians are becoming Russians, a unified people with beginnings of modern identity. The Battle of Snipes Fields end in the humiliation of Mamuk Khan, Mamuk will escape, but then be attacked by Totashami Khan of the Blue Horde, an associate of Tamer Lane. Then the Blue Horde will return to crush Moscow, probably through trickery and betrayal, but crushed just the same in the coming years. Totakamashi will encroach upon the holdings of Tamer Lane, causing Tamer Lane to chase him from the throne and replace him with a puppet con. Uh, there's another reason that I wanted to read this one on Alex's take, because I just said the same phrase in another history segment uh, that he also uses here. So just as the Persian tri tribes joined together against a common enemy and eventually became the modern nation of Iran, the Mongols have forced the tribes around Kiev, Rus, and Moscow into a unified fighting force with the beginnings of a Russian national identity. This seems to be a natural part of human existence, to believe that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The origins of the proverb go back to the ancient Sanskrit text from the 4th century BCE, 
but no doubt is as old as the first human being who ever thought to group together into tribes and protect themselves from other tribes. FYI, I've been told that Ukrainians don't like to be called Russians, but in my reading it seems that Kiev, Ukraine, was the original capital of the Kingdom of Rus, Moscow, when it, when it, and when it was the Soviet Union stole many historical items from Kiev in an attempt to establish Moscow as the real inheritors of Rus, any input on present-day Ukrainians, any input from present-day Ukrainians on this issue would be helpful. Uh, my grandfather would have punched you in the head if you called him a Russian. And I don't think it's complicated to understand at all, regardless of where the origin, the origin of the Kingdom of Rus goes back to. And I'll explain it to you in a very, very simple way. Uh, how would you feel if somebody called you an Englishman? Or how do you think that a person in Eastern Canada would feel being called a Frenchman? Or how do you think a Mexican would take to being called a Spaniard? Um, how do you think that the people of Portugal, not Portugal, uh, uh, Brazil would take to being referred to as Portuguese? Huh? Uh, how do you think the, uh, the Kiwis, the New Zealanders, would take to uh, being called Brits? And uh, they may understand what you're talking about, but they'd seem to, I'm not, no, I was born here, and this is our national identity. And I think that that's, if we, as we go through forward in history, you'll see that long before the USSR, there was a Ukraine. And then after the fall of the USSR, there was once again a Ukraine. And people have their national identities based on their birth and their tradition and their common cultural ideals. It is interesting, though, that many times those very bindings that hold a nation together exist solely for the purpose of defense against other nations. And you'd say, well, maybe it's just human nature. I would say it's the nature of power. Again, I challenge anybody to take me up on this. I have a feeling if you don't look at serial killers and just think that like they only qualify, if you made a list of the... Uh, the 100 largest mass murderers in the history of the world. Folks like our buddy Tamer Lane would be there. Um, Kublai Khan would probably make the list. Uh, Adolf Hitler would probably make the list. And if you kept going, you'd probably find that all 100 of them used the power of the state to murder. So that's just something to think about whenever you see a nation getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. At some point, that much power usually corrupts. And what starts out as a basic human instinct, let's band together so that we can protect ourselves, often leads to a much bigger need to protect yourself because once you create enough enemies, sooner or later, they start shooting at you. And the fact of the matter is that the United States has enemies who are enemies simply because they hate us. There are some. But most of our enemies hate us because of what we've done. It's a hard thing to accept as an American. It's been indoctrinated in our school system to pray to the flag with your right hand over your heart. Did you know that's what you're really doing? It is basically a form of common prayer, a pledge of allegiance to a flag. Um, I don't know that it's bad that you pledge allegiance to your nation, but I wonder what the effect of doing it on a daily basis is in the young mind of an individual, and I wonder if it's not part of the plan. My nation has my allegiance. 
my government has lost my allegiance to their actions a long time ago. Anyway, with that, let us move on to happier topics. It seems like we're always going to happier topics when we come out of the history segment. Maybe we'll have a, a happy history. Oh, before I go into the fish thing, our buddy Alex Shrugged, right, that does these things, He's kind of down and ill right now. I don't know exactly what's wrong, but he's kind of sick. and he, He's got them all done out to like the middle of next week. But I'd like to know from the audience if you guys would be willing to maybe we could set up some kind of like a little fund, uh, not because he's sick, but because he does these things. Uh, that would pay. To, I don't want to collect the money or anything. Like when he's back and feeling better, we could get it set up. Like you could just kind of give Alex a tip every once in a while, two bucks, three bucks, whatever, whatever you think. Like you know, this guy's putting all this work in. I bet you he has an hour of work in every episode to do these for us. And I think it's awesome that I can add such an in-depth analysis and such a concise view into history to you guys. And uh, eventually, I'd like to talk to Alex about when he we get caught up. Let's say there's you know two thousand. Uh, 14, 2015 episodes of the show, and we're kind of caught up to modern day, to consolidating all this stuff into some kind of a book. Uh, I think this would be an incredibly interesting book to have. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show, cooking fish. Uh, I want to start out with the basic way to not screw it up, all right? If you said, what is the number one way that people screw up fish... They overcook it and cook it too long. And they said, what is the number two way that people screw up fish? And it's they cook it at all if it's a saltwater fish of a certain type. I, I You know, I can eat braised tuna, but uh, uh, like a sashimi grade, beautiful red piece of tuna. It's so buttery and lush. Let's make sashimi out of that and let's, let's cook something else is how I often feel. So... I want to start out with some basic rules, and the first one is don't overcook. And I'll tell you why people overcook. People overcook fish for the same reason many people that weren't taught how to cook properly overcook meat. They're afraid they're going to undercook it and eat it and die and wail and gnash of teeth and brain worms and all kinds of other stuff. Look, you're not going to eat undercooked fish. You won't eat it. You'll know it's undercooked. Don't worry about it. It's okay. When fish flakes, it is done. Stop cooking it. When fish flakes, it is done. Stop cooking it. When fish flakes, it is done. Stop cooking it. You could honestly, at this point, just start making all kinds of recipes you find online, and your fish cooking will be better if you have previously overcooked your fish. If you eat fish and it is mushy tasting, if the texture is not right, you have overcooked it. It is the is the only way it comes out that way. Even fish that have a reputation like drum, redfish, uh, sea trout that have a from the drum family, and other fish that have a reputation for being mushy, they're only mushy because they were overcooked. If they're cooked quick and stop cooking when it's done, they will not be mushy. Unless they were handled poorly. Members of the drum family, if they get cold and warm and cold and warm and soaked in the wrong kind of water and they're not cleaned right away, they can, they can kind of get mushy before they're cooked. You can, you can kind of look at the flesh itself and know that it just doesn't have any, it has no resilience to it, it doesn't stand up. And then maybe you can make a chowder out of it, which we'll talk about today. Number one, do not overcook. Number two, do not ever eat raw fish or citrus cooked fish 
which means you have never applied heat. You've only used citrus to make something like ceviche that we'll talk about today. Never do that unless the fish is saltwater fish from salt water, not brackish water. Not a saltwater fish that swam into brackish water, okay? Not a saltwater fish that swam its way up into fresh water. Now, people do eat raw salmon out of the rivers of Alaska, and I have never heard of anybody in sick or dying from it. Um, I still have to give you the recommendation that you don't eat raw fish out of fresh water, but you've got pristine, clean, and the fish has been in salt water, just entered fresh water, so it's probably okay. But the basic rules are, if it came out of fresh water, do not eat it raw. Cook it. Because that there are certain parasites that can be dangerous that get into fish in fresh water that can't live in the salinity of salt water. All right, so there you go. Um, next, learn to clean fish and consider, at least in some instances, buying a whole fish. Right? So a lot of times you go to the market and they've got like whole fish, like whole snapper, whole tilapia. You don't see whole catfish very often or something like that, but a lot of times you can see a whole fish. And it sells for a lot less. And there's things you can do with the other parts of the fish that are normally thrown away. So that's what I'm going to say next is learn to use what others throw away. And that was one reason to buy whole fish. Usually your whole fish has got it for you. Uh, be creative and use recipes as a guide, not the law. A recipe is a guide. A recipe is something somebody else did, and they had a result, and they liked it. So they said, you can do this too. And if you look at it and go, I don't like lemon pepper, use black pepper. It'll be okay. If it says sprinkle a little oregano on it, you don't have oregano, but you have a mixed Italian spice that has some oregano in it, try that. I'm going to tell you to cook fish today with sumac because it tastes like lemon. So if you don't have sumac, zest a little lemon on there and squeeze a little juice on it. It'll be okay. Give yourself the freedom to adapt and improvise and make your own stuff up. That said, some of these recipes are pretty damn good, so you might want to try them this way first and then branch out. So there you go. All right, so let's start talking just flat out. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to make you hungry today. If you haven't eaten yet, you might want to pause. You might want to go eat a snack before you listen to this because you're going to be freaking hungry. Um, warning given. Let's start off with what I call shore lunch style fish fry because that's what it is. So when I was a kid, we took a trip up into Canada. And I was told by my, my dad and my uncle, like when, when we go out with these guides... We're going to catch walleye and pike and stuff like that. And they're going to pull over on shore for lunch. And they're going to cook the fish we just caught. And I don't know how they do it, but it's the best fried fish ever. Oh, I get these fish. So we go out the first day, and the guide makes the fish. And it's amazing. And I'm like, how does he do that? And he, you know, my uncle's like, well, he won't tell you. It's a secret. So okay, I'm like 12, 13, I guess. You know? And I'm like, don't tell me. So I walk over there. Dude, how do you make that? He goes, oh, it's easy. He goes, uh, it, it's, it's basically half white flour and half cornmeal uh, and about a cup and a cup to about a half a teaspoon of salt and a half a teaspoon of pepper. That's it. And then I sprinkle, he says, like, I sprinkle, like, dried parsley on at the end because if you fry the parsley, you kill it. That's all it is. You make as much as you want. Just if you go to two cups, use a full teaspoon of, of salt and a full teaspoon of black pepper. That's it. Well, there you go. That's, that's, the, that's the batter. If you want to call it that. Now, how do you, how do you get that onto the fish and cook it right? All right. So 
What he was using was um, just lard to fry the fish, and you can do that, and he was pan-frying it. If you really want to deep-fry it, you're better off using something like peanut oil for your fish. Um, and I usually do, if I'm making this at home, I usually don't pan-fry it. I usually do deep-fry it because it just stays, all the coating stays on a little better, and it's a little bit easier to cook a lot of. The guy that's cooking it in the, on the sh actual shore has literally filleted the fish, dredged it, rolled it, and dropped it in so quickly that that fish is actually still cold and has never warmed up. The, 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 the ribs and the, what's left of the fish might be moving a little bit over here while it's frying. And because of that, you don't have a lot of problems with the coating coming off and what have you. So he's got a little propane cooker hooked up. Big old lump of uh, lard in there and basically pan frying it. And that, that actually comes out really, really good. But if you want to cook a lot of fish, because you know you're cooking for two or three people like this, you're doing just a quick shore lunch and you're going back out to do some more fishing, it's not that big a deal. If you're cooking for 10 people in a fish fry, it's a lot more fish and a deep fryer is a little easier. And pre-preparing it is a really good idea. So what he did was a, a mix made of about half egg and half um, uh, milk. I have found, through my industrious activities, that if one is to use half and half instead of regular milk, one gets a much stickier dredge. But either one will work. So when you put the egg in the bowl, add about as much milk as is in there and take a fork and whisk it up. Take your fish fillets, dredge them in that, and then roll them in the half cornmeal, half flour with salt and pepper mix. Put them on a paper plate or a plate, one layer, and I like to use paper plates for this because what I do if I'm making a lot of it, I have one layer deep of fish, put another paper plate on there like I'm making a multi-layer cake, put the next layer on, and keep doing it until all the fish is breaded. And I put that in the refrigerator for at least an hour. And all day is fine. And doing this one evening and making your fish the next day is fine. When that breading sits on that fish in the refrigerator for all that time, a little bit of the, 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 the dredge just kind of dries up and it really clings nicely when you fry your fish. The number shall be 350 and 350 shall be the number unless the number shall be 325. Most fish does really good at 350 degrees. Not 360 degrees, 340 degrees, it's probably okay. But not 360, not 375, and damn well not 400. 350 degrees shall be the number. Get a thermometer, check your oil temperature, 350 degrees, get it stable. You can bring it up to about 360 before you add your fish, because it'll drop down, it'll probably drop down about 20 degrees, and it'll come back up, and you want to hold it about 350 degrees. If it goes a little over, just back your heat down, don't freak out, but do back your heat down. When the fish floats, remove it. It is done and eat it. Let it cool. Put it on some paper to drain. Let it cool. That is it. That is probably, without getting complicated, without all kinds of complication, the best way you can do fried fish, and I don't care what kind of fish it is. Now, I said, unless the number shall be 325. Some fish, for instance, crappie, have a much more delicate nature. And dropping the temperature down to 325 and doing everything else the same way will generally result in less opportunity to overcook the fish. And with crappie, if it looks done and it's sort of floating but not completely floating, I still remove it. And as long as it's crispy, it's done. 
And if it goes into 325 degree oil and it's a fillet and it's in there long enough to brown up a little bit and float, trust me, it's done. You're not going to die. You're not going to get brainworms. It is done. Get it out. And uh, then you really might want to consider serving this with a bit of homemade tartar sauce. I will give you my basic recipe for tartar sauce. You can probably find versions of it over and over again the exact same way because it's what most people do. A cup of mayo, two teaspoons of uh, pickle relish, sweet pickle relish, one teaspoon of mustard, and uh, about a teaspoon of lemon juice mixed up. That's it. The guides had Heinz pre-made tartar sauce in the bottle because they were out in the boat and it, it was easier. Um, but that's my basic recipe. Now, You want to get a little clever with your tartar sauce. Um, some chopped up sweet onion in there is nice. Chopped up jalapenos in there, de-seeded and, and just chopped, you know, small cubes in there is nice for people that like a little bit spicier. If you want the jalapeno but you want to bring the temperature down, make sure you get all the white part out and saute your jalapenos for about a minute to a minute and a half and drain them. And that'll bring their temperature down and soften them a little bit, but I like them raw. Uh, and a little bit of dill, fresh chopped dill in there, either way, any way you want, is nice. And I like to add the dill. If you add the dill, you actually can omit the lemon juice, but you don't have to. But that's my basic tartar sauce, and it really is great on fried fish. Ah, but Jack, thou art paleo. Thou shalt not eateth thy corn and thy flour on thy fish, for thou shalt break thy, thy pledge to being paleo. Well, I am what I call... 80% paleo, 90% of the time. And if I'm eating this, I am in the 10% where I am not paleo. And I do not think we must live our lives 100% attached to anything and that there are times to have a piece of chocolate cake or sure fish fried fish. Though I am going to give you an almost paleo, and it kind of sort of is 100% paleo way to fry fish. It is very good. It is not as delicate, light, flaky, and delicious as the one I just gave you, but it's pretty good. You're going to mix up in equal parts the following, and I'll just say cup, but it could be gallon for all I care, or half a cup, depending on how much you want to make. You're going to use a cup of pork rinds. You're going to put them in a bag. You're going to beat the hell out of them with like a can of beans or something like that, or a rolling pin, and roll it back and over. You're going to make crumbles of... Uh, Corn, uh, pork rinds. Now, when I say a cup, I mean it, the the crumbled measurement, not the pre-crumbled measurement. So it takes a lot more in the cup to end up with a cup of crumbles. You're going to dump that into a bowl. You're going to fill up the cup measure with one cup of hard, shredded Parmesan cheese. I told you it would be good. You're going to dump that in there. I say almost paleo because that is no carb at all. But dairy is not paleo to some and paleo to others, depending on which camp you're in. That's why I caveat with almost paleo. You're going to get some sprouted grain bread. Again, paleo for some, not for others. You're going to toast it. You're going to toast it to a, a, a hard brown thing, or you can just set it on the counter and let it go stale. But with the sprouted bread, it kind of can go wrong before it goes stale. So by putting it in the toaster, you'll do better. You're going to take a cheese grater. You're going to make breadcrumbs out of the sprouted grain bread. You're going to make a cup of that. And into the whole thing, you are going to add one cup of almond flour or almond meal. Either one will work. You're going to mix that all together, and that shall be what you put your dredged fish into. It is 
awesome. It tastes so good, and no one will believe you when you say, basically, this is diet food. Um, but it's not as crisp and flaky and light and delicate as a shore lunch-style fish fry. Now, for either one, I'm going to tell you the way to make your fish as light and delicate as you can and not caked with grease and not so heavy so that it, it can and that is you get your fillet knife and anything thicker than a half inch make thinner. So instead of putting like if you get big catfish fillets and look like an inch thick up by where the head is, take your fillet knife and come across there and from about where the fish is a half inch thick forward Take the top part off. And it's okay if it tapers down to a little thin part. That'll come out just fine. When you cook fish, it's like an inch thick or more in a fryer. It takes in a lot more grease into its flesh. It becomes a lot heavier. And it, and it takes longer for it to float because it weighs more. And it cooks longer. And it sucks in more grease. And it's just not the same. The other thing is, while this will take more time to prepare, rolling it this way, it will come out better for you if you cut it into smaller pieces. So I like to cut my fish into a piece that if you picked it up and ate it with your hands, about three or four bites would come out of it, and you'd have that one little piece left that you pop in your mouth. So you're talking, you know, I don't know, about the size, a little smaller than the palm of a man's hand, a grown man's hand, a little smaller than that in size. Half of that, actually, would be pretty nice, but when you go that small, you end up with a lot more pieces to roll. But cut it down a half inch thick and cut it down into smaller pieces. And you'll just have a much easier time with it in the fryer. You'll break less of it. There you go. All right, so there we go. Now I want to tell you how to cook catfish in a way that I've never seen anybody do but me, but it is awesome. Now, this is for big catfish. This is for when you set the hook and, and you pull this big old 30-plus inch channel cat, 26 inches and up, maybe like a six-pound and up fish in. And you're kind of hemming and hawing, like this isn't a normal box fish that you normally take home because it's really, really big um, for a catfish. And they're not quite as good filleted up when they're that big. But it's not a trophy fish either that like, you feel guilty about killing. Uh, you can do this with flatheads too. You can do this with blue cats. But this is your bigger fish, right? Your fish that when you go to put your hand around the back of that catfish and get it between the fins where it doesn't fin you, you have a little bit of trouble holding it, or you can't really. You need two hands. Fish of that size and up. What you're going to do with that catfish is you're going to skin it. Now, you don't need to nail its head to a board and a tree and anything. With bigger catfish, sometimes that actually works. But basically, you cut around the, the head and down the back and get yourself a couple pair of pliers, grab it by the jaw with one pair, and grab the skin with the other pair and pull the skin off the catfish. So you've got a skinned whole catfish. Cut the head off, gut it, and then lay it down and stake it. And now you are going to go about an inch to an inch and a quarter thick. And when I say stake it, you're going from head to tail with it. You just take a good sharp knife and cut through the backbone, leave the bones in it, and cut it just like a salmon steak. And you'll get down to a piece of the tail that it really doesn't make sense to keep staking it anymore and then just cut the end of the tail off there and cook that one as it sits. All right, So you've got like one long one and the rest are like vertically staked. Okay, This is going to be hard for some people to accept. You're going to do very little with this at this point. 
you're going to cook it on a grill. You're not going to use aluminum foil. You're not going to use a special fish pan. You're going to cook it on the grill like you would a steak because that's what it is. It's a steak. There's a lot of things you could put on this, but you don't need much. Salt and pepper and nothing will work. Catfish is greasy, and the bigger it is, the more fat it contains. It's one of the reasons it tastes so good. There's fish like stripers and sand bass that have a fat that's not particularly good tasting. You have a darker meat where the meat's red. It turns dark when you cook it. The fish isn't bad, but that fat itself isn't like really, really yummy stuff. And a lot of people, when you catch bigger stripers, will actually cut the red meat out of the filet, and I understand why they might. Um... Catfish, the, 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 the oils and grease in a catfish, the fat in a catfish, is very good tasting. And again, when it cooks out, it cooks out into this white grease. So you can just take this and get your grill a good medium-hot temperature. You need a clean grill that meat doesn't stick to. This fish needs to not come out of an icebox, cooler, or freezer, or refrigerator, and be ice cold when you put it on the hot grill. Then it will stick. It needs to be out, covered, for about 20 to 30 minutes, not in a pile, spread out, so that it can begin to come up in temperature, so it's up in the neighborhood of 40, 45 degrees, instead of 30 degrees when you put it on the hot grill and it sears. If it's not super cold when it sears, even if it sticks a little bit, if you just wait a little while, it will self-release. As it begins to shrink, it will pull itself from your grill. Now, if you have a crappy grill that's all dirty and nasty and have all kind of gooey, sticky stuff on it, it will stick. If you have a good, clean, prepared grill surface, a little bit of oil on it or whatever you need to do to make your surface prepared, which I basically use a brush, and I just brush all the heavy stuff off my grill, and if it looks like it got a little too hot and dry in an area, I take some oil, usually peanut oil, and, and just put it on the brush and then brush it with that. That's all I do. You take the whole fillet of the whole steak, put it on there, and cook it. Let it cook until it starts to have grease dripping out of it. And the grease starts to flare up. Take a spatula, flip it over. It should be browned a little bit. If it's not browned a little bit, you're going to flip it over before it's done. It'll keep cooking. It'll keep, grease will keep coming out of it. And it'll kind of brown and crisp up on the outside, like it's like, almost like a steak caramels. Right? Flip, if it wasn't brown enough for your taste, flip it back over. You're probably not going to overcook this. It's thick. It can handle it. It's got grease in it. But as it starts to look done, it is done. Get it off. You can do it just like that. It's good. You want to make it better? Okay, here we go. And less likely to stick. Make up a little herbed garlic uh, olive oil. Chop up some fresh garlic, or you can use dehydrated garlic or garlic powder if you must, but dehydrated garlic or fresh garlic, um, I don't know, a teaspoon or two in a little cup, fill it with olive oil, put that in there. Then use some Italian herb seasoning or just parsley or parsley, thyme, and dill, whatever herbs you want to use, whatever flavor you're looking for. You could not go wrong with a great big pinch of Chef Keith Snow's uh, Northern Italian mix in there. Put that in there, mix it up. Let that sit for about an hour while you're getting ready to do your fish. When you go to put your fish on, set it on a cutting board, brush one side with the oil. Put it oil side down, brush the top, put it away, you're done. You're done. Excellent. You want to go a little sweet teriyaki-ish? Okay. Same fish, tablespoon of honey, tablespoon of soy sauce, 
and enough water to make it kind of thin. A little sticky, but kind of thin. Cook your fish. Brush it with olive oil first. Put it, Just plain olive oil. Put it on the grill. Let it warm up. When the bottom is starting to get warm, brush the, t brush the top. I'm sorry, flip it. So cook it about half the length of the time that you would normally cook it, right? Before you'd flip it. Flip it early. Now brush the warm side with the, the honey and soy sauce wash. And then cook it about half the length of time. Flip it back over onto the honey wash side and then so now you're flipping it instead of just one, two, you're flipping it, or just once really, you're flipping it uh, multiple times. So you're cooking it halfway, you're getting it hot, this is the key, you're getting it hot before you add this honey and soy wash to it. And you can use any additional herbs and things like that. What goes fabulous with that? Everybody wants to get complicated and rare, exotic crap. Good pepper mill that'll crack your pepper kind of coarse. When you flip it back over and it's a little sticky, but it's done on that side... Hit it with some cracked pepper. When you bring it off the grill, put that side down on the plate and hit it with a little cracked pepper before you serve it. Phenomenal. Everything I just said you can do with a salmon steak. That's where I got the idea. That's where I got the idea. One day I was cleaning a catfish and he was a bigger fish and I just decided to skin it and steak it. And I looked at that and I went, boy, that looks like a salmon steak. And I've tried all of these things with it and it's awesome. It's awesome. And the honey-washed soy with the cracked black pepper is the bomb. It is absolutely the bomb. You probably can't find catfish steak um, at a market. You probably can't unless you have a place where maybe locals sell fresh-caught fish because usually the hatcheries and what have you and commercial fisheries are wanting to take catfish in the 18- to 22-inch range for fillets. That's, that's usually what they're looking for. So the fish don't get quite big enough to stake out, but you might find it. If you want to try it with salmon, you can. Um, for all the hype salmons get, I, this with catfish is unbelievably good. Unbelievably good. All right. So now with salmon, catfish, tilapia, just about anything, let's talk about doing a plank roasted fish. This is, this is something that you pay lots of money for in restaurants and it's so, Freaking stupid easy. Um, you need to get some grilling planks or a piece of wood that will suffice for a grilling plank. I usually want a piece of wood about a half inch to an inch thick, and a half inch is usually better. Rough cut. Um, the traditional is cedar, but you could, and the other traditional one is alder. Those are two, two woods that are very, very uh, conventionally used. You could use rough cut oak. Hard for me to use a piece of oak that way, but I could do it. Uh, maple, cherry, apple will work. Most hardwood will work. It can't be chemically treated or anything like that. And you want it rough cut, really. And you want to soak it in water. And you want to soak it. I would, I don't do it without soaking it like basically all day. Like if I'm going to do a plank roasted piece of fish, I want that plank to basically be emitting both smoke and steam into that piece of fish. And, So I will put it in some, a tub of water somewhere and weight it down with like rocks or bricks so that it stays under the water. And you want that to soak all the way through. And then brush your fish with cooking oil. Again, the garlic, herb, uh, olive oil is a great one to use. And um, it's, it's really stupid simple again. But I've developed my own methodology that's a bit different than what everybody else does. So I take my grill on a medium heat. And I put my planks on the grill. 
and I get the planks to where they're starting to to, to smell, and the, they're starting to smell a little bit, and they've gotten to where they're reasonably warm on the top side. They're pretty hot on the bottom side. I flip the plank over. Most people don't do this. I put the fish on that heated piece of plank, and that starts it cooking a little bit quicker, and it, it transfers heat a little bit faster. And then you kind of have to keep an eye on it. Sometimes you just, And the nice thing is you can just slide your whole plank over off of the heat. If you're using a gas grill, turn your heat down uh, to control it. Get a spray water bottle. If it starts to like burn a little bit around the edges and all, that's fine. It's going to do a really great job with, with the fish. But if it looks like it's starting to get a little bit too much flame on it, hit it with some water. I do like to close the grill down at least a little bit when I'm doing this to hold some of that smoky goodness in there and to get the fish to cook through a little bit faster. And as soon as it, it flakes with a fork, and you get to where you don't have to do that. You look at the fish and you know, get it off. And I usually take the whole plank with a, with a pair of pliers, basically, off and set it onto a cutting board. And if you want to kind of really make a point when you serve it to a guest, serve it on the plank. It's really a cool way to go. Most people will tell you that you'll get one use out of a piece of wood, and it's it's done. I've hit it with a grill brush before and knocked it off, and if it looks like it really didn't go that far and it's a thicker piece of wood, I'll soak it and use it a second time. And at that point, it's you know a piece of kindling or something like that. It is pretty much used up. But plank roasted fish is good. You can do that with store-bought tilapia. You can do that with salmon. You can do it with catfish. You can do it with trout. You can do it with anything. In fact, the more delicate fishes for grilling come out really good that way because the fish is never actually exposed to direct heat. It's always an indirect heat through the wood. And if that wood is really soaked well, it's kind of a cross between steaming, grilling, smoking, and poaching all in one. And it, it tends to keep the fish nice and moist, especially if they're given a good uh, brushing with oil, both on the side that goes down to the, to the board and the side that remains up, and a sprinkling of whatever you want to use. Salt and pepper, you can't go wrong. Salt and pepper, and cook it with salt and pepper, and then fresh chopped parsley sprinkled on at the end. Uh, you can use dehydrated if you want, but fresh parsley sprinkled on at the end, really, really good. All right, next up I want to go over one of what I think is the kind of one of the most overlooked ways to use fish that is really simple, really easy, Really unique because we don't do it anymore because people made chowders, stews, soups out of fish for thousands and thousands of years. And, um, it, it just, I think people like the, the day that canned chowder came out, everybody can, was, became convinced that chowder was this thick, gooey, white stuff that only camels can make or something. Um, and it's a really easy thing to screw up by doing the one thing you do to screw up fish, cooking it too long. So, I'm going to give you the shore lunch version. So this is something you could make camping at a lake or a, a river or a stream uh, by ease of use, which you can certainly make at home, and it's very good and more of a gourmet cook style. And I'm going to tell you that my chowder recipe is designed with the intent to omit and add things. If you think you like something in it, stick it in there and see how it is. If you want to turn it into a spicy red thing, I'll even talk about that a bit more like an Italian fish stew. Go nuts with it. If you think, man, that would be really good, but what if you threw in uh, half a pound of uh, small shrimp in there? Try it. Throw an oyster in there for all I care. I do not care. This, I'm going to tell you, though, is the simple way to make the basic fish chowder 
Um, and this is one of my favorite things to do when I'm camping as far as dealing with fish that are caught, where you don't feel like frying and grilling and stuff like that, and maybe you've brought other stuff for stuff like that, and you just want to, you caught a couple fish, and it's too much work for too little return for how many people are there. But if everybody had a little bowl of this stuff with their dinner this or lunch, this would be pretty good, right? That type of thing. So if you're fishing and you want to do this, my advice then is fillet your fish, skin your fillets, dice up your fillets, put them in a bag and set them on ice or in the cooler or whatever aside. Remove the fish entrails and dispose of them. The skin, the bones, the head, the eyes, the fins, all of it, then goes into a stock pot. And in that stock pot, you add water to cover it based on how much you're going to make. And then the other things that you really want to carry with you and add at this point are some, and you can do this with fresh, but usually when you're traveling, it's easier to do with dried. Some onions, some parsley, some celery, and some carrot. How much? A small handful of each dried. Okay? So again, it's, it's onions, celery, carrot into the, into your pot with your water. Heat it to a low gentle boil and boil it for 10, 15 minutes. You're making fish stock. Most recipes will say to use clam juice or vegetable stock or something like that. You're sitting there with all of this leftover piece of fish with all these little pieces of meat on it and everything like that. Throw it in the pot and make a fish stock. It takes 15, 20 minutes. While you're drinking a beer and bullshitting with your buddies, camping. If it's easy to do there, it's easy to do in the kitchen. When it's done, pull out the remains. So you'll use like a, a strainer is a good idea to have. Like you would use to remove stuff from a fryer. Works really good. If it's a scaly fish, you have two, like a really scaly fish, like a trout or something like that. You could just throw the skin in there. If it's a scaly fish like bass, perch, things like that, you can either scale it or don't include the skin. Just remove the bulk of the skin when you throw the fish in there. If it's if you're going to do this with catfish, there's no problem. You don't want the catfish skin, at least not most of it, because it's slimy and sticky and gooey. A little bit of it actually kind of gives some body to your chowder, but when you fillet your catfish, lay it over, take the meat off of the skin, and cut that piece of skin off. But other fish, you can just leave the skin on. Again, remove the entrails. Some people would put it in there. I, I just don't. I, I don't think it adds that much. So you've boiled it. You remove it. Get the bones out. Little pieces of fish flick back into it. Little pieces that come off the bones. It gives it like a broth, a background. Now, if you're doing this in the, in, 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 in the field or you're doing the shore lunch version, you're literally almost done because it takes so little time to cook everything else. What you're going to want to have if you're doing the shore lunch version, you could do this with dehydrated potatoes, but I've never tried it. You'd have to rehydrate them separately and put them in at this point. Um, you could do it with dehydrated corn, and it would be the same thing because it takes a. Or you could put them in there and simmer them till they're they're rehydrated and soft. But when we always did this for camping, you just get a can of diced potatoes and a can of sweet corn. Dump those in, okay, and. Bring the temperature back up till they're nice and warmed through because you don't want to overcook any of this stuff. Um, add a good sprinkling of parsley at this point and then add your fish, your cubed fish, and bring it up to a slow simmer and cook it till the fish 
is done. When you can push it with a fork and it flakes off, it's done. That's it. That's the whole thing. Uh, except, <laughs> I almost forgot the most important part. That would be like a fish soup, right? I wanted to help you make a chowder, a creamy chowder. So to make a creamy chowder, when you add your fish, also add a can of condensed milk. Add a can of condensed milk, and you'll get this white, creamy chowder. If you want to take it a little bit toward the oyster stew version, throw two or three tablespoons of butter in at the same time. And you'll get this buttery, floating goodness in there. So you can alter it that way. If you want it closer to a traditional New England chowder, use, use heavy cream. Or if you don't want it quite that much, you can use half and half. You can use regular milk. But if you want to travel and camp and not have to worry about refrigerating everything, a can of condensed milk works really good for this. So those are all the ways you can do it. Now, how would I do this more gourmet style at home? Um, assuming I have the whole fish, I'm going to make a stock using the fish body. Uh, assuming I don't, I'll use either a fish stock or a vegetable stock or get this chicken stock. Chicken stock is a great base for fish stews, soups, and chowders. It really is. It's not out of place at all. The fish flavor overpowers the chicken. You sort of know it's there, but you don't, and it tastes really good. So you can use either one of those. But let's assume I have whole fish to work with. So I'm going to do the same thing. Fillet the fish, remove the skin. Small-scaled fish, the, the skin can go right in the stock. Uh, Heavy-scaled fish, I'm either uh, scaling it before I put the skin in, or I'm just emitting the skin. Catfish, I'm emitting the skin. But the whole body of the fish goes in. The bones, all the meat left on the bones, the tails, the fin, the head, the eyes. Except I'm not going to do that yet. That's, that's how I'm going to make the stock. I just want you to know that's going to be the same. I'm going to start out, for the base of my stock, I'm going to make a mirepoix. And a mirepoix is what we sort of kind of tried to do in the shore version. It's carrots, onions, and celery. Okay. Well, we just put dehydrated stuff in there for the flavor in the shore lunch version. For the one I'm going to make in the kitchen, I'm going to cut up a cup of onion, a cup of carrot, this is finely diced, and a cup of celery. I'm going to put olive oil to cover the bottom of the pan into the pan. I'm going to bring it up to a nice temperature. I'm going to cook it down. I'm going to cook it till the onions are clear and the celery and the carrots are soft. Now I'm going to add my water. I'm going to bring my water up to temperature. When it starts steaming, I'm going to put all my fish remains in there. I'm going to start simmering it. I'm going to simmer it for about 20 minutes, and I'm going to strain out all of the icky parts of the fish And whatever amount of time and effort I want to put into it, I'm going to put all the little pieces of fish that have come off that are not that are cooked but have not quite separated from the bones back in. If I want to make my life really, really easy to get the stuff out, I can take uh, basically a, a cheesecloth and put all my fish remains in that and tie that up and simmer that in there, and that way I don't have as much trouble getting all the little bones and stuff out, and I can just pull that out. Another way I could do that, check this out. You get a pot that's big enough and a, a steel colander that's big enough. And when you're boiling your fish, you set the colander on top of the pot. You put the fish in the water. It's boiling in the water. But you almost you just lift the colander up the way you would pull something out of a deep fryer with a deep fryer basket. And then you can pick through it, pick all your little pieces of fish off, throw it in there. That's really important because it's okay that that gets mushy and goes into the background. It's kind of like a puree. Okay, So now I've got my stock. Now I'm going to add diced potatoes, okay, and I'm going to take corn on the cob, good quality sweet corn on the cob, and I'm going to cut the corn off raw of two cobs. 
I'm going to set the corn aside. I'm going to set the corn aside. I'm going to take my diced potatoes, small spoon-sized potatoes, how much, as much as matches how much soup you're making, right? Diced potatoes in the pot, and I'm going to continue to simmer my now strained stock until the potatoes are just starting to get soft but are not quite soft yet. I don't want mushy potatoes. At this point, I'm going to add my fish, okay, and I'm going to add some fresh parsley, and I'm going to add my creamer, whatever I'm going to cream it with. Whether I can use, again, evaporated milk, regular whole milk, cream, or half and half, depending on how creamy I want it to be. Evaporated milk is this nice, it's, it's weird, but it works really good. Um, and I'm going to simmer that, and when the fish is almost done, I'm going to add my raw corn, and I'm going to leave the corn. See, the canned corn will naturally stay a little crunchy, even if you add it with the fish. The corn that you cut from the cob yourself will tend to get a lot softer, because it's not a whole kernel the way the canned corn is. So I'm going to cut it off put it aside, and throw it in there just to heat it through. And then I'm going to add another little dash of fresh parsley on that. And if you really wanted to push it a little bit more gourmet, a little bit more flavor balanced into it, when you make your stock, add a couple bay leaves, add a handful of black peppercorns. You kind of stretch it wherever you want it to go. Uh, but I left one thing out of both recipes, salt. Per half gallon, about a teaspoon of salt. Uh, and using uh, like a kosher salt or something like that is usually what I prefer to do, or sea salt versus uh, you know your typical table salt. So I left the salt out of it. I don't like to over-salt things. The salt, when you're making the broth, I'm sorry I left that out, or the stock, it helps extract the flavors and it balances the flavors a bit. For salty salt taste, you can always add more salt at the end. But if you make something too salty, you really have a hard time Taking, there's no way to really take it out. So those are two ways to make fish chowder. Now, let's say you want to make something more like a like a Maryland Maryland style clam chowder, moving toward the Italian side of things a little bit. You know, a real basic way to change that. Go a little bit heavier with Italian seasonings into it, making up your own, or just use like a good Italian seasoning mix like Keith's. Omit the corn. Though it wouldn't be bad, just but it's not traditional. Omit the corn. Use a couple teaspoons of tomato paste to redden it up, and you're you're pretty much there. And then what? Add whatever you think would go with that. You want to make it a little bit Cajun-ish. Instead of using an Italian seasoning, use a little bit of like Old Bay. That's not really Cajun, but it, it'll bring the spice into it. Use the tomatoes. Add a little little um, what's the word? Okra to it. You can play with this, and there's a million different ways to do fish stews and soups and things like that. So those are some ideas there. Um, I want to move on to two ways to do fish without cooking cooking. Um, one is called ceviche. Again, we want to use salt water fish for this and very fresh fish for this. This is best made on the shore of the beach from fish that really are suited well towards it. Uh, one fish that is really suited towards this quite well uh, is, um, what are they called, whiting. Or they're also known as Gulf Kingfish. And they're good for this because they're, they, they're so delicate, they tend to go off a little bit on you. Spanish mackerel comes out really good this way, pompano, permit. Um, but most saltwater fish we eat, flounder, um, snapper, all of them come out really good this way. 
Um, you do want fresh fish, and it needs to, to, to go from dead to cold and stay cold. Um, I'm going to tell you how I make ceviche. There are almost as many ways to do ceviche as there are to do soups. Everybody has an opinion, and my dad used to say a thing about opinion. Everybody's got one of them, and they're like, they're like assholes. Most of them stink. Right. So, um, you know, I don't necessarily think that's the case here, but all my point is if you do this differently, that's fine. I cut up my fish into bite sized chunks and I get a couple limes. I don't measure my lime juice. I also cut up some fresh jalapeno pepper, a little bit of fresh tomato, and I get some cilantro. And garlic, a little bit of garlic's not out of place in this either, and a little bit of red onion's nice. And I mix that all together. The limes are still sitting aside. So I mix everything together first. A little bit of thinly chopped celery is actually surprisingly interesting in this. I use a little bit of salt and pepper. And then I get my limes and I start cutting limes in half and just squeezing the limes over it. And I keep doing that until I get enough lime juice that I know everything's really, really coated well. And I put that in the refrigerator. And I wait about 15, 20 minutes at least. I give it one more stir. And then I eat it. And I, I'll eat that with, you know, a little bit of crackers or just straight or whatever. It's, it's phenomenal. Now, if you've eaten ceviche in restaurants, you've probably had it with little bits of fish, little shrimps, and little bits of scallop. You can do the scallops right in there. If you get some small scallops and you know they've been kept fresh and, and, and what have you, they can go straight in there and be cooked with lime. You, if you do this with shrimp, they look cooked. It's, it's considered not safe. So the way to do the shrimp, boil a pot of water, okay? Get a colander like I talked about for making your fish broth. Put your little shrimps in the colander. This is if they're raw, okay? You can use big shrimps and cut them into small pieces, too. That's another great way to do it. Get the water rolling boil hot. Put your shrimp in. Cook that for about a minute is all you have to do. And have a bowl of ice water sitting by. Come straight out of the hot water into the ice water and stop the cooking process. Then add them. Then add your lime juice and do everything the same way. That way you can do shrimps and, and little scallops in there. Those are really good. Um, I, I've found probably the best tasting fish to make ceviche with is snapper. That, that's, that's been, of, especially of what you can buy. And it's unfortunately a fish I'm not able to catch a lot of, so it's more of a store-bought thing. But I'm sure there's other fish that you can try. And pretty much whenever I surf fish, if I catch a fish I've never done it with before, I'll at least fillet a little piece, chop it up, hit it with a little cilantro and lime juice, and set it aside and taste it that way. And if it comes out like, oh yeah, that's something I'd like to eat, then I add that to the make ceviche list. And if I eat it and I go, you know, that's nah, that's not really, because not every fish tastes good this way. They, they really, not every fish tastes good this way. Your white, light-tasting, non-fishy, non-fatty fish generally are the ones that taste pretty good this way. I can't see how grouper wouldn't taste good this way, but there's so many wonderful things to do with grouper that it's hard for me to justify cutting grouper up into ceviche. We used to break the rule that I gave you all the time, basically because I didn't know any better and the locals did it. 
down in Panama, we used to make ceviche with peacock bass, which are freshwater fish we caught tons of in Lake Gantoon, which is on the Panama Canal system. I have to say, I never saw anybody get sick in any way, shape, or form, but my understanding, it is not safe to prepare freshwater fish as ceviche, so I'm telling you not to do it. I'm also telling you that I've seen it done without anybody getting sick, and I'm not telling you that for a backhanded reason. I'm not telling you that so that you'll say, oh, well, I can do this anyway. Um, no, I am telling you this so that you will understand that just because somebody's done something and not gotten sick doesn't mean it's always safe. The research I've done on eating any type of non-heat-cooked freshwater fish is pretty conclusive. And it is basically this, that the fish can have parasites in it, and if it does have parasites in it, there's a very good likelihood that it will make you sick. If the fish doesn't happen to have parasites in it, you'll get away with it. So what probably happened for us is all the fish that we ate that way were parasite-free. And that's why nobody got sick. Or, you know, a year later came down with brainworms or something like that because it's a real thing. So it should not be done. So this is not like when I tell you the government says comfrey is bad, but I eat it anyway. Um, this is a flat out, do not do this. I don't know why shrimp has to be cooked. I'm not sure of the biochemical reality or what type of parasite maybe a shrimp can ha harbor that uh, other seafood can't. But my understanding basically is any fish uh, or any shrimp or lobster or something like that should be heat cooked. It should not be consumed raw. And I can't tell you if that's 100% true or not. I have just gotten to the point where I absolutely don't see the reason to take that risk. I don't see there's much to be gained. And, you know, flash cooking your small shrimps or whatever for, you know, a minute, minute and a half, and then ice water bathing them and then preparing them, I, I see that works as really well. If you want... To add shrimp to your ceviche and just have it be really easy, get the you know the small to medium sized canned shrimp and just throw them in there. Just throw them in there and, and let them sit. And they taste just fine. They really do. Um, shrimp is a different thing than you know a fin fish, and I just treat it that way. Uh, next, I want to talk a little bit about doing your own sashimi. Most of you guys uh, have probably seen the video of me uh, making uh, sashimi. Uh, out of some ocean-caught shore fish. Uh, I think we had some uh, pompano, uh, some whiting, some jack, which is supposed to be terrible, which was really good. It, it really tasted a lot like mackerel does when I go to like you know the sushi place and get sashimi and order mackerel. Mackerel is considered a low-cost uh, fish in the, the sushi sashimi world, and a lot of people don't like it. I like the flavor that it has, and the, the small jacks actually tasted a lot like that. Um, I really want to talk about doing it yourself, though, with store-bought fish here. Because it's a very expensive thing to go eat. And some of the stuff that sushi chefs do is really incredible, um, really amazing stuff they do. But when it comes down to sashimi, yeah, you can do it wrong, but you can only do it so wrong. And if you practice a little while, you'll be able to do it right. The first thing to understand is you want to fish, if you can get it, that's never been frozen. And number two, you want a fish that is truly a saltwater fish. I have a big concern about people that do this for themselves with salmon, if it's farmed salmon, because the salmon may not have been farmed 
in enough of a saline, uh, you know, salinated uh, environment where that we know that it's truly a saltwater fish still. Okay, so I, I, I really have a problem with any salmon that's not a wild-caught, very, very fresh salmon, and sashimi, the fish needs to be very fresh. But salmon and tuna are probably the two best. Snapper's pretty damn good. Um, a lot of the other fish that you see in sushi restaurants, you don't generally find fresh available from uh, the grocer, but you may. And if you go to Asian markets, you'll find a lot more availability. But no matter what you're doing, it, it's really not hard to slice sashimi the right way. You need a very sharp knife. You need to slice the fish thin. This is a little difficult to explain, but your fish will have a grain. And you don't want to cut with the grain or directly against the grain. You want to cut 90 degrees to the grain. And instead of straight through the fish, you want to cut at an angle, a thin slice, like you're, you're, you're cutting a, like almost like a 45-degree angle out of the fish. And there's tons of videos of this on YouTube, if that doesn't make sense. But the reason you do that is that when you eat the fish that way, it, 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 it's a lot softer, and but yet it doesn't fall apart. And by cutting, if you cut straight down, you, you get one type of uh, interaction with the fish. But as you cut kind of at an angle, you open the pores of the flesh up, I guess is a way to look at it. Because the next thing we want to do when we eat this is we want to dip it in wonderful soy sauce and wasabi. Okay? And it really makes sense to get real wasabi powder and mix up your own wasabi rather than that pasty green crap, which is basically mustard and green, uh, horseradish mustard and green food coloring. So real wasabi powder mixed up, and then you can either put dabs of that on the fish and dip it in the soy sauce or do what most of us do, which is we mix the wasabi into the soy together and dip it and eat it. I just wanted to throw that in there. It's not really cooking fish. But it is something that can be a very expensive habit that can cost a lot less money if you learn how to do it yourself. There's all kinds of sushi you can learn to make for yourself and all like that with you know the, the rice and stuff. And I'll give you a quick, easy way to do sushi if you want to eat rice. Cook your sticky rice so it's sticky, your sushi rice. Um, and the way I do rice, no matter how I'm doing rice or what kind of rice I'm cooking, I cook it like it's a pasta. I, I put a, I fill up way more water than you would think you would use to make rice. I get the water boiling. I put the rice in. I stir it up so it doesn't stick to the bottom. I bring it back to a light boil, and I boil it in a slow, light, rolling boil until I can pull some rice out and taste it with my fingers, and it's it's soft. And I, I strain it through a colander, and I hit it with water, with spray, like the hose sprayer from the sink, and rinse all the excess starch off of it. You don't really need to do that when you're doing the sticky rice. Let it cool. And if you're going to do rice for sushi, uh, to a couple cups of rice, add about a teaspoon, or a tablespoon, I should say, of rice wine vinegar and mix it in. All right, then you get your sticky rice with your rice wine vinegar infusion. Take two tablespoons, get them wet, take a lump of rice, put it in one tablespoon, take the other tablespoon and mash it like a form. So one spoon facing the other, mash it like a, like a, like you're making a little form. Pull the excess rice off the edges, back into the bowl, make it nice and tight, take it out, set it aside, there's your little rice lump. It won't be nice and perfectly square the way it is in a sushi restaurant, but it'll be a nice little rice lump that you can put your little different, you know, sushi fish on if you want to do rice. I prefer just straight sashimi. Next one I want to give you, really easy recipe. 
I call it fish on the half shell. And uh, my good friend uh, Hal Dodd really turned me on to this one. Uh, he called it sand bass on the half shell because the guy caught so many sand bass in his life that he had to do something with all of it. And this is really simple. This does not get more simple. You make a fillet of a fish, and this this is really good to use. Uh, kind of a a good thick scaled, thick skin fish, sand bass, uh, big bluegill, largemouth bass. You could do it with trout, but trout's a little bit finer skin, finer scaled. Your bigger scaled fishes work great for this. Fillet it, you know, around the rib bones and all, just like you normally do. You could even leave leave the rib bones and just you know not eat that belly part and kind of get your fish out. So just fillet it. In fact, I would say leave the rib bones. It's probably a better way because you're going to get a better result with this. Get your grill hot. Brush it with a little olive oil, salt, and pepper. And put it skin side down on the grill and cook it till it's done. That's it. Let the, let the skin be that which the fish cooks in. Now, I know some people like crispy fish skin. And I do in a fine-scaled fish. I don't like it in a thick-scaled fish. You could scale a fish like this if it's got a good thick skin, cook it this way, and eat the skin and all. And that would probably be quite good, though I've never done that. Um, a variation on this is with thicker-scaled, thicker-skinned fish. Just gut it. Leave the head on, leave the tail on, come from the butt up, gut it, clean everything out nice and good, and then cook the whole fish on the grill. Skin it all, not wrapped up. You can rub a little bit of seasoning and butter and, and, and or butter or olive oil on the inside if you want to, but most of it's going to cook out. But that's not a bad way to do fish. A way to do it a little bit better, whole or as a fillet, if you want to infuse it with some flavor. And you could do this with the fish on the half shell, but cooked whole in wrapped foil, this will come out better for you. Take your fish, whatever kind you want. Now you can use thin-scaled, thick-skinned, whatever. It doesn't matter. I wouldn't do this with catfish with the skin on, though. Um, but a whole typical fin fish like... Anything from a sand bass to a largemouth bass to a trout, you name it. Gutted in the in the and then salt and pepper on it, both sides, and in the inside, in the body cavity. In the body cavity, insert a sprig of sumac. Like sumac from a sumac tree. Not poison sumac that's white, smooth sumac or staghorn sag, uh, sumac, which is red. It tastes like Pink lemonade if you mix it in water. That's what this stuff is. A sprig of sumac goes in there. A sprig of dill goes in there. Salt, pepper, olive oil. Wrap that up. Add some butter as well. Pat a butter in and seal that up. Cook it sealed about 10 minutes an inch on a medium hot grill. You don't have to flip it, but it seems to come out a little better if you flip it. Like if it's a one-inch thick fish, five minutes overheat, flip it, five minutes overheat, bring it off the grill. When you bring it off the grill, open the foil and serve it with the foil, or drain the, the juice that will come off into a little side dish. And then you just take your fork and flake off the skin and eat the fish and drizzle the juice back over the, the fish once you get the skin off. If you want to do that in a way that is a little bit less work when you eat it, do it like fish on the half shell. Fillet it. Now you only cook it on one side. Lay a small sprig of uh, sumac, a small sprig of dill, salt, pepper, a little bit of butter. Seal the, 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 the uh, fillet skin side down in the foil. And if you really want to make this easy, Right, and you want to serve the fish without the skin, 
which again, some people like the skin, some don't. Use the regular foil, the stuff that doesn't have the non-stick coating, and don't put any oil on the skin side. And a lot of times when you take it off, you unroll your foil pack and turn it over, and the fish will fall right off the skin, and the skin will stick to the foil. I've never found that to be that big of a deal. Uh, I kind of like it served in the skin, and you, you know, person can decide whether they want to eat the skin or not, because some people love it. Um, but either way, that comes out wonderful. Now, this is what I'm talking about. You don't get stuck. Well, there's no sumac here. I live in the desert. What do I do? Okay, use lemon juice. Use lemon juice. I'm just giving you a way to use a wild-crafted ingredient there. You know, because you got the dill from the garden, maybe the butter from your backyard dairy or from a local provider down the road, the fish you caught yourself, and sumac sprig. So when I say a sprig, I mean, you know, a little, a little clump of it pulled off one of the little cone-looking flower-shaped things. Don't be afraid of it. It's very, very good. Next, how to do fish for fish tacos. There's a lot of ways to do this. This is the easy one. Okay? That's, you know, this is my basic ingredient for the dusting powder that you're going to put on the fish as you cook it. Is two parts chili powder, one part paprika, and a quarter part garlic powder or granulated garlic. All right? So that's it. And you can make it with teaspoons and cups, whatever amount you want. But you make a powder like that that you're going to put in something you can sprinkle with. Now you're going to make a chili oil. There's the simple way, and there's the little bit more complicated, better tasting way. You want, you know, you can just take chili powder, add it to some oil, put it in a jar, shake it up, and let it sit overnight. That's one way to do it. Another way is kind of a variation on my chili garlic oil for that I use for like, you know, chili garlic tied chicken wings and stuff that I've given out before, but it is a better way. And what you want to do, get some dried ancho chilies. Dried ancho chilies, you can probably get them in just about any market. Crumble them up, get a big handful of peppercorns, and put that in a small pot. And fill the pot, the small pot, up as much as you want to make with olive, not olive oil, peanut oil. Bring it up to temperature, and what I mean by that is, is it just, as you look in there and you see the little bits of pepper and peppercorn, like they're just starting to, like they're going to fry, but they're not quite frying yet. There's a little bubble here or there. Kill the heat, put a lid on it, let it sit. Let it sit for two days. The, the, the oil should be red. Reddish, rosy-colored red. If it's not, you didn't use enough peppers. Strain that oil off and just save it in a jar. And you can use it for a lot of things, just like the other chili garlic oil that I talked about. It's a little spice you're using the Thai chilies and what have you. This has an amazing flavor to go with your fish tacos. All you're going to do is cut your fish up into the size pieces you want for your tacos. You're going to you know, put enough in the pan to fry and coat the fish well. Salt and pepper on the fish, and cook the fish in oil. While the fish is cooked, when it's about half done, take that powder that I had you make up, sprinkle it on your fish until you get a really nice red, oily coating on that fish. As soon as it flakes, set it aside to drain, sprinkle fresh cilantro on it, and make whatever kind of damn taco you want to out of it. That will be the closest thing to a real Mexican street-style fish taco you'll get your hands on. I know some people make fish tacos with fried fish, but that's not a real taco. That's Somebody put a fried fish in a taco. 
A lot of times the fish tacos are done with like shredded cabbages and things like that. It's really good, but I'm not going to get into what you put on your taco. I just wanted to tell you how to make the fish part for that really good, authentic Mexican taco. And uh, I'll tell you how I figured this out. There's a little taco place up in Frisco where we used to work. I can't remember the name of it, but the same people that own Mi Cocina own it. It's like a taco diner or something like that. And they have these amazing fish tacos. And I was talking to one of the guys that works there, and I'm like, how do you make these? And he's like, no, 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 no. I can't tell you. And I'm like, you make this with ancho chili oil. There's the, 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 the chili, the, 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 the oil has the chili in it before you cook it. He goes, no, 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 and he ran away, right? So I'm like, aha. And then the, 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 the paprika, the chili powder, and the garlic powder, when I first made it with just the oil, it didn't have enough to it. It didn't have a punch. And by sprinkling that as it's about half done and giving it a coating of that, it's really good. And salt that to taste. Don't cook with salt in that. You can add a little black pepper if you want. You can play around. I like to do that. And I also like when I'm, you know, when the, when right before the fish goes in, you're heating the oil up, uh, a good handful of diced jalapenos in there is really good, but not everybody's going to want that much heat. Uh, but the cilantro, Hit it at the end, and then you have extra cilantro to go on your, your tacos, unless you hate cilantro. Cilantro is a love-hate thing. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people say it tastes like feet. Some people say it tastes like heaven. It's up to you. You can admit anything you want to from any recipe that I'm giving you. Um, the last one I have for you, you might start a knife fight with at a barbecue. It's smoked catfish. It is something that a lot of people do, and a lot of people do right, And a lot of people do wrong. Over-salted, over-cooked, over-smoked, um, under-brined, over-brined. This is how I do it. You use fillets for this is the best thing to do. Catfish fillets. And you make a brine to soak it in. I do to a gallon of water, a cup of kosher salt, and a cup of brown sugar, and a handful of black peppercorns. And about a teaspoon of uh, like cayenne pepper. And if you don't want to go that hot, this is not going to be that hot though, spread out over this. But if you wanted to back off that a little bit, you could use like a teaspoon of Tony Saturi's or something like that. But I like to use cayenne. And the best way to brine these so you don't have to make too much brine is put your fillets in Ziploc bags, like one gallon Ziploc bags, and just add brine to the bag until you know all the fillets are going to be covered. Push the air out of the bag, seal it up. Make as many bags as you need to do all your fish fillets. And if you need more than a gallon, make more than a gallon. But that's a, a cup of salt and a cup of brown sugar uh, and some peppercorns. That's that's it. I actually prefer, rather than using whole peppercorns in a brine like this, though, it's only water, only so much flavor comes out. So I have a coffee grinder that I grind a lot of spices and seasonings in. I'll put a handful of peppercorns in there. And I'll hit it a couple times until the, it, you know, it's not coarse ground. It's more like cracked. It's like, you know, and still big chunks. Like maybe each corn is becoming two or three pieces and put that in there and you'll get more of the flavor of the black pepper to come through. That needs to brine for six to eight hours, not for two days. Six to eight hours, it needs to come out. And when that comes out, you want to put that onto a cool smoker. You want to smoke them at like Under 200, over 160. 170, 175, 180 is a perfect smoking temperature. They probably need about two hours to smoke like this. 
if you really like black pepper, get a pepper mill, and when they're about half done, crack black pepper over them, and that way the black pepper will still have a lot of the fresh taste to it, but it'll be on there early enough that it'll really stick. That's it. And they come out phenomenal. You won't eat a raw fish this way. They will be done. This is not like smoking salmon to hang in a basement for months and months on end over winter and curing it, preserving it. If you want to keep some of this around, if you can keep it from all being eaten, you can freeze it. But it won't quite be as good after it's been frozen than it is fresh. It is great warm off the smoker. It is good cold. You can make like basically like a fish salad out of the cold pieces of it. It's good crumbled up on a just a big old garden salad. It's good mixed with maybe a little bit of mayo made into like a, almost like you would do tuna fish, more like a like a smoked crab salad type of thing. It's good for everything. But it's best warm because it's going to come off warm. It's not going to be really really hot picked up and eaten like finger food. It is just so ever loving good. Now I got a little tip for you. This is why you tune in the jack. And this is up to you what you prefer. When you fillet a catfish, down by the tail it gets thin. Okay? That little thin piece will cook faster and drier, and be like a little catfish potato chip. Uh, almost like a fish jerky. That little piece would probably store pretty well. And if you oversmoked it, I don't know how long, but I bet catfish would store pretty good without refrigeration if you smoked the hell out of it. You don't want to do that. It tastes too good this way. So if you like that little piece of fish potato chip, smoked fish potato chip, just put it on there and do it the way I said. If you'd like all your fish not done that way, <laughs> take your two tail pieces of two different fillets and overlap them till the, those two pieces come up to about the thickness of the rest of the fish, if that makes sense, like lacing tires kind of. So instead of having a fillet fillet, you have the fillets in pairs of two on your smoker with the two pieces of the fish tail overlapped. When you're done smoking, if you try to pull that fish off, you're going to pull it off as one unit of two, which is going to be kind of awkward because the two pieces will stick together. You can play around with them and try to get them apart, or you just pick one side and you just cut it, right? Or you can cut it right in the middle, honestly, with, with a sharp knife, and then take your two pieces and leave that piece stick on there. And then all of your fish will be not potato chippy. Me, I like it potato chippy. So it's up to you. I like that little dried, hard, crispy piece. You might want... Yours all nice, soft, and if you do this right, if you keep the temperature under 200 degrees and you only smoke for about two hours and you don't overbrine it, this fish will be moist. It will be very, very good, and like I said, if you serve it at like a barbecue, as the quantity dwindles down, you may cause your guests to get into a knife fight for the last couple pieces of it. My final thoughts today on this wonderful episode, which I am now hungry myself from, um, again, don't be a recipe Nazi. Change anything and everything you want to, but follow the rules. Don't eat freshwater fish raw. Don't eat shellfish without cooking. Not shellfish, but don't eat um, crustaceans, I guess, is the way to go. Don't eat raw crustaceans. Because um, I do eat raw scallop. I eat raw um, oyster and raw clams on the half shell and stuff like that. But a crustacean, like a shrimp or a lobster, should not be eaten raw. And don't overcook your fish. 
Do that and get creative and give yourself some freedom. And what you'll find is all of a sudden like fish will be a bigger part of your diet. The reason we don't eat as much fish in America as they do in the rest of the world is we're, we've gotten into this burger, steak, potato, sausage mentality, right? Fish requires a little bit more thought and a little bit of creativity. It's not like chicken where you can put chicken in 400 things and you pretty much do it always the same way. Fish, you can overcook it. You can overcook chicken, but if you're using thighs and legs and dark meat, it's a little bit harder Breast, you can overcook on the grill, but it's less likely to happen for most people, at least I've found. And when you're cooking your things like, you know, tamales or, or something like that, or uh, like casseroles and all, because it's smothered and stuff, it's really hard to overcook. Fish, you can overcook in any way, shape, or form. So we have to be a little more careful with it. But if you get out and be creative with this, it, it, then it also incentivizes you to maybe go get more fish that you can, you know, avoid paying for. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. Again, this does top off the uh, the fishing series that we've done. I think this is seven total episodes. And I will be back tomorrow with you. Let me see real quick. Who do I have up for tomorrow for you guys? Sam Sampson. That's a name I should be able to remember uh, quite well. He is actually a reenactor. Uh, they do Revolutionary War reenactments. And we're going to talk about how... You know, what you learn from doing reenacting and history a little bit and how participating in reenactment actually can help you be a better prepper because you're actually moving into a lifestyle like the people of the time lived in. So I'll have him up for you tomorrow, and then I'm taking Friday, the 4th of July, off. Please remember, we are running that 4th of July sale through Monday, the 7th. The discount code is 4JULY, first year of MSB for 35 bucks. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
redemption. 